0: Welcome once again to Dave and Marlo, of Blazers Edge podcast covering the Portland Trail Blazers. or since they are waiting till May 16th to find out who they're going to be for the next decade, uh, we'll cover the NBA, but we'll always bring it back to the Blazers. I'm Dave Deckard here together with Marlo Ferguson, and we are right in the middle of the second round of the NBA playoffs, fairly entertaining. Marlo, I want to get your impressions right off the bat of the series, if you don't mind. Uh, Let's start with Philadelphia and Boston. They are tied 1-1. Philly wins game one thanks to, what, 45 points or so from James Harden. And no Joel Embiid at all, rocking Boston back on their heels. But then the Sixers get Embiid back, but Boston comes back with a vengeance and wins by 35 and what do you make of that series so far?
1: I think that's probably been the hardest series to kind of decipher, you know, at this point in time. Uh, you know, the Celtics, they come in in game one, lose to a team that's missing this MVP, and then you come back and win by 34 with them on the floor. So, um, and then individually, you look at James Harden, you know, you, you kind of want to give him some flowers for his 45-point his game, and then he follows it up 2 of 13. So, it's, it's very tough. Um, I think schematically, I'm kind of interested to see what they do with P.J. Tucker, I feel like Boston's, they, they've kind of left him in the arena by himself from three-point range. And If he's not going to make threes, I think that's going to be a big thing with that series. Um, and then I guess the last point that I would probably make is, just looking at Joel Embiid, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I, I look at the statistics. Uh, he had the biggest drop-off from uh, postseason, uh, regular season points per game to postseason points per game, and, and this is two straight years in which he's gone from 30 to 20, so uh, just tough, and I think that that's going to, Kind of look bad when you look at his, his resume, so hopefully he gets that going, and, and hopefully we get a competitive series from here on out. So.
0: so, yeah, this series brings up a lot of stuff. Let's start uh, with, a, with a big point. Uh, Joel Embiid has won the MVP. Do you agree with that?
1: Do you, would he have been your vote? Well, I'm like 50-50. I think if you, if you were to tell me that Embiid was the MVP, I wouldn't have argued with you. If you didn't say Jokic was the MVP, wouldn't have argued with you. And uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, too, he was, he was in the conversation. I think I might have went with probably Embiid this year if I had to make a choice. Um, And a lot of that's just based on the fact that he's done it so consistently, uh, anchoring an offense and a defense, which Jokic doesn't do on defense. So you can make a case for either one, but I think I'd go with Embiid there. Yeah, I mean, I think his
0: middle-of-the-floor play has been really good. Look, modern centers, it seems like they're, they're two modes increasingly There are fewer low post centers, of course, but coaches still try to get him to play close to the basket. Or they're completely face up and they're way out on the floor. Embiid has embodied that middle zone as well as anybody we've seen in the last five or six years, at least. Love that. I thought his defense was good this year, too. So I can see uh, how he would win it. Uh, Jokic has done a lot of the stuff that he does for years and years now. So it's not like necessarily got better, but he is great. Uh, You know, these awards are fickle. You can you can see it going to the new player, but as you say, it's um there are no wrong answers. James Harden, that's interesting. He has kind of a quiet year by his standards, certainly playing second banana, but then steps up, as you say, for this Jekyll and Hyde performance in game one and two. And I think that this is what people don't understand about aging. It's not like a player will get older and stink, right? A player will simply get older and not be able to do what you're used to them doing every night. And this is the drawback to, for instance, the trailblazers looking to acquire a player in their, you know, middle 30s. Like, okay, yeah, you are going to get that player and you're going to have nights where you go, ha ha, that was the right acquisition. And then you're going to have nights where you go, oh, this is not going to work. The question is, can you absorb something like that? And I think James Harden is a classic example, albeit turned up to 11 because of his skill set and way of playing.
1: Yeah, Harden's such an a interesting kind of kind of character. If you listen to his press conferences, he says stuff like, like you would think that he's capable of doing that anytime he wants. Like he still turn it on the way he did with Houston. And he said, you know, he's when he averaged 25 or 35, 40, Houston couldn't win. So he changed it up, and now he's a 20 and 10 kind of guy. Um, but you know it's, it's difficult flipping that switch. You know you give him credit for that, but I don't know. I'm not sure that what he's saying matches what we see on the court. You know sometimes he looks a step slow. That first step doesn't seem as quick. So it, it's interesting to look at. Uh, but I, when he's when he's when he's on, you know he's he's still a top you know ten offensive player. But when he's off, it is ugly. So I don't know. It's it's, it's kind of hard to say. But. You know, you're hoping that this is the year that he kind of, you know, shakes the, shakes the monkey off his back and and really makes another deep playoff run. So it's going to be fun to see.
0: It's a great example, though, of why Kevin Durant and LeBron James are among the greatest of all time, because these guys have defied that. Right. I mean, and part of it is their body type. I mean, Durant is so long that his skill is magnified and LeBron is LeBron. Right. But. Part of it is also that dedication, that reshaping their games to where they're effective and at the top of the league in their mid to late 30s is absolutely amazing. I mean, incredible. I, look, you had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did it. You had Robert Parrish did it in a sense, right? Because he played till he was 40, but his latter years he was not the same Robert Parrish as he was before. These guys are Supreme superstars all
1: through their career,
0: and you have to admire that.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying, and I think that's uh, it's really interesting to look at guards. You know, it's it's kind of difficult for them to kind of do that, you know, year after year. And I think that's why a lot of people have pause about Damian Lillard. You know, it's just a guy that's 32 years old, um, and, and minutes are piling up, accumulating. It's going to be difficult for him to do that. So yeah, uh, I don't know. of interesting to think about.
0: Guards are like the running back. Yeah, I mean, they're the first to age, right? But I would put an asterisk on that, that shooting can extend your life, right? And as Steph Curry is already showing that, I think Dame will too. The thing about Dame is that this year he turned it up and got to the rim and drew fouls a lot. That's the question. As soon as Dame becomes containable on the drive, then I think he he gets more into this is a star-ish level shooter who is always dangerous and you have to respect, but no longer one of the supreme superstars.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad we got a chance to kind of transition back to the Blazers. Um, just a weird season for him, too. You know, having a career high through point rate and a career high free throw rate. Like, you, you rarely see things like that, especially for a guard to have played that long. So it's really awesome stuff. And, it, you know, we're fortunate to have a really good NBA with a lot of great players. So it's fun to see.
0: Yeah, we'll see if he can pull that off again or if he needs to. Uh, the other thing, uh, Coach Missoula Boston, there was a little back and forth because game one, and I heard people taking people to task for this, and I think, I think it's appropriate. So they lose game one, which, of course, shocks everybody, and automatically, Missoula is the worst coach in the universe. And people are saying, well, he didn't make adjustments. He didn't make adjustments. And all of a sudden, game two, the Celtics just blow the Sixers off the court, and Missoula's going, can I talk about my adjustments now? And, and like, nobody wants to hear it. And a little backlash against media and analysts being vague uh and not actually knowing what they're talking about i can see that i mean it's like look not every loss is because there was some magic button that you didn't push and you're an ignorant coach who happened to look past it uh, these guys know a lot they they've forgotten more than the rest of us know and sometimes players just play and coaches coach actually pretty well and all the adjustments in the world don't end up working because you know what? It's an actual athletic contest, and either side can win.
1: Yeah, that's well said. I think I love to see a coach kind of talk their talk, or a player, anybody. You know, when you get a chance to redeem yourself, it's always a good thing. Um, and, and you look at game one, if I recall correctly, they had the, the highest like effective field goal percentage in playoff history for a team to lose a game. So sometimes it's just a matter of you're not getting stops. And, and some of that's coaching, but some of that's, you know, good defense doesn't beat great offense. And in that game, that game one, James Harden, Tyrese Massey, guys like that were hitting very difficult shots that sometimes they just go in in this NBA. So um, I, I, I don't understand why they do that to coaches, you know, especially after one game. You know, if he's got a body of work that shows, you know, what he's capable of. I think we as fans, we, we kind of jump the gun and get a little bit too ambitious when it comes to, you know, our our, our narrations and how we view players and coaches. So um, I'm shout out to uh, Coach Missoula. I like to see that. And hopefully they can keep it going, you know, going forward.
0: Yeah, I remember about seven, eight years ago, the whole thing was substitution patterns. This coach makes terrible, has terrible substitution patterns. And I never understood what that meant because, you know, few coaches substitute in a strict pattern to begin with. And I think what they meant was You know, there's a guy on the bench who didn't play or didn't play much. And I think that guy was better than the guys who actually played because the guys who actually played lost the game and my imaginary player wouldn't have. And I'm going like, wow, but in real life, if you don't have the ingredients to make a pound cake, you can't just throw in the oregano and and
1: make it work. Yeah, I mean, I've never made a pound cake, but I can see that being Absolutely. I think you're right. You know, I, if you're a coach, you don't want to be in a situation where you're, you're rigid and, and predictable with your, your uh, substitution patterns. Um, and so, you know, you want to try to adjust for matchups and whatnot. And he did that in game two. So, you know, all the credit to him, and it's going to be a chess match. That's one of the best things about the postseason is you get those adjustments and chess matches and how they, how they approach that. So, so the w is probably going to have something coming for game three where they can, they can kind of combat that.
0: Well, and also, like, I think you can critique an individual play. But how many games come down to that individual play? Even if it's the last play, there were 100 before it that mattered. Also, if a coach isn't doing things, it's usually because he can't. You know, you're, you're, again, it's like you think you have a magic wand to bring this ideal man-to-man defense off of the bench or whatever, or switch to it. Well, you find out, well, the man-to-man sucks, right? So that's why you're playing zone. Because it's worse, or at least not better. Or the classic example with the Blazers, and we're seeing it with Chauncey Billups. Why don't the Blazers run more? And I've said that for years, you know? Of course. But we see sometimes, well, they're not running more because when they run, their transition defense actually falls apart, and now they're running up a sand dune, and they're actually slipping farther back than if they just play half-court basketball. Now, I think that's changing now. But I think that was certainly true, for instance, uh, three or four years ago, when we were all on Terry Stotts for, for doing it. Uh, and it's like, you, there's, again, there's no magic solution that's as easy to say. You just have to let the games play out.
1: Yeah, we, we've had a lot of conversations about that uh, in terms of the Blazers trying to run in run, uh, run transition a little bit more. You know, it's just tough because you, you solve one problem and then you get two more coming right after it. So it's it's, it's difficult to say what you should do. Um, and we're thinking about specifically Damian Lillard, you know, there's a lot of talk about him not being a, a, a player that wants to play at fast pace. You know, he kind of want to drag it out, play a little bit slower, pick and roll. So, you know, you got to appeal to your players um, and, and different circumstances they have too. So a lot more goes into it than just making a decision here and there. And, and you know, we're seeing it here. I'm, I've just been enjoying the games, but definitely something to think about.
0: Well, and it's different, too. I mean, the Blazers have room to experiment now, right? I mean, they have zero expectations. If they want to try running more or rebuild that offense, so be it. It's not like they're going to go farther back, or if they did, all it gets them is more ping-pong balls. When you are legitimately fighting in Damian Lillard's prime with C.G. McCollum beside him and, and a lineup that you traded, specific, traded for specifically to get to the conference finals or beyond, you're not going to roll those dice in the same way because you know what? You can't absorb the backwards slide. Now that all of a sudden that takes you from you're hoping like third in the West to eighth in the West. And there's a big difference between those two.
1: Yeah. And I think with this, this new regime of, of the Blazers that we're going to see over the next couple of years, I think it's going to have to be, you know, more fast paced as opposed to like a half court setting. You look at guys like Shaden Sharp and whoever they, if Anthony Simons is there or whoever they deal to get, get a player for Anthony Simons. I think it's definitely going to be more fast paced, more athletic, um, things like that. So thinking about that, you know, you're going to have to make a move eventually. So it might make sense to, you know, start putting the work in now to get there. Um, So it'll be something to think about.
0: Even Jeremy Grant. I mean, when you look at Jeremy Grant, you don't say half court power forward. You say, well, he can play in the half court and he's fine. But you know what? You could take advantage of his speed and defense better if you played a little faster. All right. Let's move to Heat and Knicks. This is one of the only series that hasn't featured blowouts. You have number eight and number five uh, seed tied 1-1. Heat win game one. Kind of feels like they punched the Knicks in the nose a little bit, kind of shocked them. But then the Knicks came back, made adjustments, won game two. What have you seen in this series that's interesting?
1: I think the big thing is that you wish you could uh, donate an ankle, you know, to the star players. You got Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brunson, uh, Julius Randle, all of them dealing with, with ankle injuries and, and things like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me has been similar to what I thought, you know, all postseason long. You know, you, you got to give credit to Eric Spoelstra and the Heat for how they've managed to. I always find a different level when the postseason comes around, um, and they've adjusted sort of well, even without Jimmy Butler being in the lineup in Game Two. You saw a lot of that, that zone defense, that kind of like we're pulling runs, so uh, it worked well. And then I guess my last big takeaway is, you know, how about how about Josh Hart? You know, you, you love the analogies with the Exes. Here, the Blazers' Exes is living pretty nice without without Portland. So you love to see it, uh, and I just felt like he had a hand in, in every play in that final final five minutes. So he's had a great postseason, and you know, you're just hoping that they continue that too.
0: Yeah, you got a pair of coaches here. I mean, Tom Thibodeau is known for defense, of course, but also for extracting every bit of whatever out of his players sometimes to their annoyance. And then, of course, you have Eric Spolstra, who just keeps showing again and again that he is a maestro of adjustments. And and this, too, the playoffs are all about adjustments, right? Sure, you get a first-round series where you might blow somebody out, right? But as you get past that you are literally looking at narrowing down to like two or three things that are swinging the games. And because of what we just said, that a team's not going to experiment with a cornucopia of stuff. They're going to bring their best three things against you until you show you can stop them. And I think Spolstra is as good as anybody in the league at reading or watching what the opponent is doing and making adjustments to take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, and it's it's been a continual continual thing, you know. Every year we see that, and he deserves all the credit in the world for that. I will say that I think this series could hinge on on Jalen Brunson's uh, perimeter shooting. I think when he gets that going again, it's going to be a different story. I think he was over seven in Game One and they shot a little bit better in Game Two. But um, as New York, you know, they, as they get their uh, perimeter shooting going and Randall gets a little bit healthier, I think we'll see them kind of wrestle the way the series. But this is one that I think is going to go, you know, six seven games and be very physical, very competitive. It'd be a fun one. Definitely a fun one to see. Have you followed RJ Barrett much? A little bit, a little bit. Um, he's a great young player, but, you know, I think I see some flaws in this game that, you know, he's got to kind of iron out. He's really had a nice stretch over the last couple of months, though, especially um, like the first quarters of games and then really stepping up and playing well. So um, I'm a fan of his. I'm a fan of his. I think that um, there's another level we can reach, but he's definitely on the right track.
0: He is so polarizing. I know people who think he's really good, and I know people who think he's complete fool's gold. And it's interesting for me to watch him. And, of course, the story is probably somewhere in between. But, look, here's a guy, I think, who has a chance to develop into a nice player whom people just kind of overlooked, right? Like, okay, he's at best going to be the third guy on this team. And when he's popping off and, and doing well, okay, that's an aberration or that's because of the system or situation. You know, if he steps up in this postseason and provides a key role, I think people might have to respect him a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's kind of easy to forget. He's just 22, 23 years old, so he's got a lot of room to grow. Um, and we're going to talk about times a little bit, but if you look at the, uh, the Ringers like the trade chart, they basically got Simons and RJ around that same area where they're like both, you know, young up-and-comers that you know, have some room to grow and continue to help teams out. When it comes to Barrett, I look at his uh, perimeter shooting, I think it's kind of concerning, especially from three-point range, but, you know, what he does in open floor, what he does around the rim, and, and just the little strides he's making. I think he's, he's, he's got all-star potential in the next couple of years, but probably a ways away from that, though, at this point in time. So Jimmy Butler steps up
0: in game one, and now you get noise about, like, playoff Jimmy do you think that's a thing I mean do you think he's really laying in wait for most of the regular season and just cranking it up in the postseason or is this like a James Harden thing where you know he's old enough to where some games he's going to be on and sometimes he's not
1: I think I've seen enough at this point to kind of say that yeah playoff Jimmy is a, is a real thing you know you, you look at the numbers his numbers continually rise uh, in the postseason if I recall I think it's like the biggest rise from a player that that averages 20 you look at last year, it went from, what was it, uh, 21 all the way up to 27. The big bubble playoff run they had, he, he played sensationally. So he's a guy that he, he raises his game when he needs to. Um, and I think a few players kind of fit that criteria, but he's definitely one of those guys that does it in 35 points on, on 59% shooting, three-point shots looking nice uh, defensively. I think that you could have made a case that he was probably the most impactful player of the first round and, and, and even so far after that. So they're going to need him back big time. They're going to win this series.
0: Okay, let's assume the Blazers can trade the same relative package for either. Do you want Jimmy Butler or Draymond Green?
1: Oh, Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler for sure. Um, I just think he's a better, better culture fit. Uh, I think that's probably where you want to start at. And They're both around the same age. I have to look at the contracts and whatnot, but anytime you have a chance to add a player like Butler, I think you do that uh, just because of the pressure he can take off of Lillard, off of guys like that. Uh, I'm fine with either one, but Jimmy Butler, just what he's able to do. I think if you can put a lineup with, you know, Lillard. Actually, I don't know who you actually give up, but I think if you can get Lillard and Butler in the same team, I think you take that chance.
0: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to lose one, if not both of the shooting guards, I'd bet. But that would be interesting. All right. Hey, you know, people are saying, I did a Draymond Green piece, and then people are saying, well, what if you could get him on the cheap? (laughs) And it's like, you think he's giving up 27 million uh, player option next year with the Warriors to sign a mid-level with Portland? I mean, that's, that's not, uh, but yeah, you really want to revolutionize a team. Find a way to get them both. Imagine Lillard, Butler, and, and Green. That would be crazy town. That would be, yeah, I'd pay to see that. All right, so we have the Lakers and Warriors as we move to the West. And the, the most ballyhooed six versus seven matchup in the history of forever. In fact, I'm not sure it's actually happened that much. But uh, Lakers come out and win game one. Kind of similar to that, uh, the uh, Boston Philly series. The Warriors come back and win by almost thirty in Game Two. What have you noticed here?
1: Well, I think so far we've we've seen the potential of you know the fireworks that you know everybody was kind of excited about with LeBron and Curry. Obviously, the second half of Game Two was, was sort of disappointing and, and not as exciting. But uh, you know, I got a kick out of seeing Ham and, and LeBron James smiling after being down thirty in, in Game Two, and they hit that goal. You know, you want to go and split one and go to State, so that will be fun, and I think one thing that I kind of looked at, um, one thing about the the postseason is, that's sort of fun is that you know you can run a guy all regular season long, and then all of a sudden he might not be as ideal of a player to play in the postseason. You know, for specific matchups. And with Golden State, I feel like we're going to see that with with Kevin Looney, um, with the way the Lakers play defense. You got Anthony Davis in the in the in the paint defending the rim, and now they got Jamal Green. He's forcing them to come out and just opening up more shots. So. Then Golden State didn't really want to, you know, attack the rim to start off that, that series, and, and they're content to be on a perimeter. So pulling Davis out, I think, is going to be huge to watch. And I, I think this series is going to go 6 or 7 as well. I'm leaning probably Los Angeles to win that one, but it's been fun so far.
0: Well, I mean, the difference, I mean, yeah, LeBron was a difference, but it's Anthony Davis, right? I mean, he goes from 30 points to 11 points, looks like an absolute warrior's destroyer to almost an afterthought. And this has been the story all year. Yeah. Uh, What's up with this guy? Uh, Is he, uh, he's clearly not the all time brilliant center that he looked like uh, with the Pelican.
1: Who is he now? I think he's still a, when he's healthy, you know, a top 10 player. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's kind of confusing on a night to night basis. You don't know what you're going to get. And I like the transition that he made this year, you know, playing more around the rim and not settling for perimeter shots. And, you know, maintaining that same defensive focus, but it's kinda of hard to see what they're gonna get. And I think Golden State, they got they've got the team and the coaching staff and the schemes in order to you know, kinda of negate what he does. You know, it's gonna be interesting to see how they re- react in game three. But um especially defensively, you know, if he's giving you eleven points on offense and he's out of the paint, um it's gonna be very tough to see him having that, that impact that we expect. So I think he's gonna bounce back, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it takes him a game or a game or two to get back to get back in this flow.
0: So at the trade deadline, one of the names that Blazers fans were hot about was Jared Vanderbilt. What have you thought of him so far in these two games?
1: Jared Vanderbilt, an awesome, awesome defender. You know, he's taking on every every challenge that comes his way. And you saw it in the first round with John Morant, and now again with Stephen Curry. You know, I think he's playing his role exceptionally well. And you know, from what I've seen, his, his three point shot hasn't looked terrible. You know, this postseason too. So that's uh, just found money, and I I, I would have been fine with Portland. You know, taking a chance on him, too. Uh, But the Lakers definitely have a good player there. And I think you can definitely build something with him on defense. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: I think LeBron is such a, I don't know how I want to say it. All-stars bend gravity to themselves. But LeBron, through his career, has tended to eat fellow front court players. For some reason, he loves to play with stars close to his position. And then somehow they don't perform as well. You have Davis, who I think is up and down. I think Davis would shine more, frankly, on a team without LeBron. If he went back to being the clear number one option and the big guy, I I don't think LeBron is distracting uh, and allowing space for Davis as much as it's like, well, who is it tonight? It's either or. But I think Vanderbilt is a guy who having a, a physical player, a big guy like LeBron to play next to... And LeBron can all, he's pretty good interior defender still. I don't think he's as good on the perimeter as he once was, but allows Vanderbilt, I think, to stay home less, roam around more, and take advantage of his physical gifts. And I think that was just, it's its an example. Like Davis may not be the best fit with LeBron, but I think Vanderbilt is.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm trying to think about some players that you may have been thinking about in terms of playing similar disposition. Evander um, was kind of different. He's not a guy that you know, commands a lot of shot attempts, um, and he, he kind of knows his role. Um, so I think that that's that's you know, a perfect perfect fit for the Lakers at this point in time. One thing that I've kind of noticed about the Lakers this year is that LeBron doesn't necessarily have to go out and, and get 30 points for him to win games. And that's like the first time that I remember seeing that being the case in, in the postseason. I mean, every other year was he had to be a hero and then bail him out of uh, different situations. But now you, you look at his last five games, 23, 22, 22, 15, 22. So he's able to kind of play his role and ease his way into it um, and then be the quarterback and do a lot of different other things. So I know it's got to be a welcome sign for him. And um, they, they've got a, a, a team that I think you can sustain that with, you know, going long term, having different guys come in and, and, and being the best scorer on that day per se. So it's kind of interesting to see.
0: And that's been a long time coming. And LeBron has tried that before and not necessarily had success. And the asterisk there or the connection there is to Damian Lillard who is eventually going to need to do the same thing. And I think he's tried a couple times not to pull back totally, but to make sure everyone else is involved. And for instance, this year, I think he started the season this, that way. And, and you see how it turned out. It's not as easy. It's not just instant. It takes evolution. And it's not just for the player. It literally takes evolution for the team to get used to their superstar not being that crutch. And this is why I I get nervous a little bit about the instant trade. where I say it's got to be a guy who absolutely changes the team all on his own, who is his own explanation. Like, you know, we've talked about Joel Embiid, who's obviously not available anymore. Like they're going to trade the MVP, right? But uh, you know, it's got to be a guy that makes you go, okay, I get it. He's he shifted the balance just by being here. Because otherwise, if you get a guy who's, for instance, 33, it may take till he's 35 before that comfort level gets there, that second playoff run, right? And is he the same player at 35 that he was at 33?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, and I'm pretty sure Draymond Green is a guy that we're thinking about, we're both thinking about the same player. And he's so used to playing a certain way in Golden State, you know, it'd be different for him to kind of adjust. Uh, and there, there are too many different players that I think that kind of fit that mode in terms of players that the Blazers can get that immediately change the culture and change things like that. Um and it's gonna come at a steep price. But in terms of Lillard, yeah, I, I, I agree with that too. You know, it's it's not a coincidence that defensively his best games came in, in, in those games where he didn't have to score thirty points or forty points. So if you can get guys on that team that can take pressure off him, I think it's 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 gonna be huge for him. I don't know what kind of defensive potential he has that he can raise up to at at age thirty two. But yeah, his, his, his best defensive games and his best high-energy games, I feel like they came when, when guys like Josh Hart had 15 or guys like Simons had 30. Um, so that's something to think about for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, even Jimmy Butler, and I think Jimmy Butler would be half of his own explanation, and I think he'd do some of those Josh Hart things. But um, again, if it takes two years to gel, I, I, I believe that Lillard, I mean, if he doesn't have to play as hard as he did this year, I believe that Lillard will last two more years. Jimmy Butler, who knows? Ah, See, my cats are objecting to that trade, too. You can hear them uh, growling. Uh, You know, it's just the thing is, LeBron has gotten players younger than he is. And I think that might be semi-important to the Blazers as well, even if it's only by a couple years. I want a guy who's going to be reaching the Lillard stage of his career When the gelling happens and Lillard is now at the 35, I don't want a guy who's 35 when Lillard's 35, if we can help it. And of course, the idea would be to get a guy who's 28 or 26, who now fits in with the rest of the roster, who even if it doesn't work, you know, can can stay and could go either way. I mean, there's an argument that Jeremy Grant is one of those players uh, and which is one of the reasons the Blazers are going to resign him. It, you know, Mikel Bridges, if he were available, would certainly be one of those players. Obviously, but if you can't get Kevin Durant or Joel Embiid, you're that second-level star who's older. You have to be careful of.
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to be really tough trying to uh, match up Damian Lillard's timeline just that way. You know, we're able to you know fight into the championship picture, but also uh, avoid leveraging your entire future. So, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be tough, and I kind of hate that you know Portland has to. Pick from from players that are over thirty years old and maybe only have two or three years left for their, their peaks and whatnot. So um, that's going to be tough to kind of maneuver. But you know, at this point in time, uh, it's just a, it's a difficult position. It's not one you see a lot of teams in. And, and I don't know. I, I, I I'm not really sure what to say about it until it happens. But I think, like you said earlier, uh, that 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 draft lottery and what the Blazers get there, I think is going to decide pretty much everything. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, and they, they'll want to go big, obviously, because that's better trade bait. But look again, look at the change in the narrative just over the last month. I mean, people were talking credibly, and it's not just you and me. I mean, there were whispers surrounding this organization about some really big names. And it seemed optimistic at the time, but we entertained it because, well, who knows in late March, you know? And it looked like some of these teams were slipping. But again, let's start here. Do you really believe Joel Embiid is available or even close to available at this point? No, no you might as well say Jokic is available, right? Uh, do you really think Jimmy Butler is available? I'm not entirely sure.
1: I, mean, I was. Go ahead. I would, I would say no. I remember um, at the start of either this year or last year when they got out to that losing streak. Uh, there was some talk about, you know, maybe Miami would, would be better off kind of pulling the plug, but. You know, after the postseason they've had now, and and, and kind of understanding what they're able to do in terms of flipping the switch from the regular season to the postseason, I think with that being the case, it'd be difficult to to see Miami parting ways with him. I think you almost got to take it another notch, another notch lower and then, um, go for some some lesser lesser players that are all stars and, and hope that they can kind of blossom into that. Because it's kind of difficult to see a lot of the, the star players, you know, being available at this time uh, realistically.
0: Yeah, I mean, is Draymond Green available? probably not for less than a mint. I mean again, if he if he opts out of his contract to become a free agent, then the Blazers would have to get him in a sign in trade because they can't sign him outright, which means convincing him and the Warriors to make that deal and they'd still have to trade salary away to get him. I mean, he's probably cheaper than the other people under that circumstances, under those circumstances, but I don't think, you know, I don't see him, guys, if Golden State advances especially, they'll probably want to try to keep him in the last year of his deal or get him to sign shorter term. I, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, the Nets show no indication of giving away Mikel Bridges. In fact, that's who they traded Kevin Durant for. So uh, these names are, are starting to disappear off of your practical list like crazy. This off plan just seems farther and farther away the closer we get to it. Anyway, like, and like you say, let's see the lottery. Maybe if they get the number two pick, maybe that changes. But we have one more series, uh, and that would be the most interesting one from my point of view. The Nuggets and the Suns, even though it's the only one that's 2-0, Denver wins the first two games at home. The first one, really convincingly. The second one, fairly convincingly. Uh, Phoenix got Kevin Durant, mid-season trade. You can't get better than that. How do you see this series going? Oh, by the way, I wanted to ask you, let's reverse for a second. Do you think the Lakers or Warriors are going to win that series? Which do you think?
1: I'm going to go Lakers in six. Lakers in six. I think maybe I'll go Lakers in six.
0: Okay. Now, how about this one? Denver and Phoenix.
1: What's going on? What do you see? Oh, this has been a weird, this is my favorite series, too. Um, a lot of it because I thought Phineas would be the NBA champion this year. And I think that there was a big question surrounding, you know, the, their depth. Um, and we knew it would be kind of bad, but I didn't think it was going to be this bad. You know, and it's a situation in the playoffs where, you, you know, your, your rotation shortens, you go to an eight or nine-man rotation, and even that's been been terrible. Like, let me let me read to you the, the point totals from the Suns bench players in game two. It was 0-0-2, 0 0, two, zero, zero, zero two. So that's four points in, in a combined 68 minutes, and no did, double, double no double digit scoring in game one. So it just kind of shows you the, the pros and cons of, of when you decide to trade for that big spot player, and you got to give away all your depth. Like sometimes it's not it's not always the greatest thing to do. And I think you know to even make it even worse, um, most years you know when you play Denver, you, you, you can count on you know being able to make a run when Nikola Jokic went to the bench, and now that's not the case anymore. So um, as Mike Rice would say, this is a team in, in deep doo doo. You know, they're, they're in a weird situation. And I'm not sure how they do it with Chris Paul being out in game three, too. So that's, that's just estimate, estimate the stress of it for them.
0: Yeah. Two lessons there for the Blazers. The one you just mentioned, bench depth. And Denver has Jokic. I get it. But Jokic also makes a lot of players around him very good, right? And he has players around him to make good. Phoenix, even after the trade, I wouldn't say Portland's bench is necessarily better than the Suns. And that's after trading for Kevin Durant. I mean, what do the Blazers have off the bench that you really, really trust in? I'm scratching to think of, of a single name when you factor in injuries. And stuff, I mean, Justice Winslow, I, I think, you know, uh, Matisse Stiebel, sure. But in a playoff series, I'm not going... Even with them, and they're not totally trustworthy, and they're the best of the bunch. I mean, Cam Reddish, I tried him with Keon Johnson in the playoffs. I'm I'm not buying this. And Denver is showing the importance of that. And the Blazers are already impoverished before they make a superstar trade, supposedly. There's more work to be done. It's not as simple as pressing that one magic button, even. The other thing is the mid-season trade. And look, I think if Phoenix has another year to run it back, they're going to obviously be better. But they need that run. You need time, like we just said. One of the things that might happen if all these teams with superstars decide to run it back is you have to wait for February for someone to give up on it. And the Blazers have to wait another four or five months uh, into into the season in order to... Get that deal done. Well, if that happens, I don't think their first playoff run is going to be that great. Do I think they can get to the second round? Sure. Do I think they automatically become a finals team just because they got a star at the trade deadline? I think you look at Phoenix and say, no. So, yeah. I mean, this is, again, I hate to be negative, but from the beginning, we've been skeptical about this. I think you're seeing right now the difference between that solid team and the team that did exactly what the Blazers are trying to do with the best possible example and not succeeding right now.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And as far as many teams as you want to model, I think there are also cautionary tales and teams you want to watch. And we're seeing that with Phoenix where, you know, the, the depth is just isn't there. And I think it puts, you know, so much pressure on their on their star players, particularly Devin Booker and Kevin. Durant. Like they've got to go out and be perfect for them to win games. Um, and, you know, there isn't a player that I feel like is capable of guarding Kevin Durant, but Aaron Gordon, you've got to give a shout-out to him. You know, he, he held Kevin Durant to 3 of 13 shooting in that game, too. Um, so Denver's got guys that I think, you know, play play their roles, you know, perfectly. And Gordon, he kind of caught my eye a couple years ago during that series uh, with, with Damian Lillard when they put him on him and, and kind of slowed him down the perimeter. But um, it's it's tough. You know, I don't know how Phoenix is going to be able to figure that part of it out, um, just knowing that now you're down your other all-star, Chris Paul, and... and if Booker and, and KD don't go for 40 points, you know, I think it's gonna to be tough for them to win this game. And they've already played so many minutes. Um, so I have Phoenix winning the series, but now I'm I'm kinda of leaning toward Denver. I hate to do that in the middle of a series, but it's it's just hard to imagine a scenario in which, you know, Phoenix matches Denver's firepower, you know, in that situation.
0: Well, we're gonna know tonight when we speak. You'll already know tomorrow when you hear this. But yeah, game three obviously is a huge one. Let's play this game. Let's pretend the Blazers get Jimmy Butler. Okay, let's uh, you know, look, it's not Mikkel Bridges, but it's it's as good as you can get of the, those secondary older stars, right? Okay, so right. we we agree that's pretty much the ideal of that genre, right? All right, the Blazers get Jimmy Butler. They have to trade away Anthony Simons and a pick to do it. Let's minimize the cost. Let's just say they get Simons and and a pick. Are they better than Denver? Let's see if you're running out there with with Lillard, Sharp, Simons, or Butler, Grant, and, and Nurkic for the sake. I mean, you have to trade Nurkic, I think, but let's just keep it. Let's just absolutely minimize the cost entirely. Chalk it all up to draft picks and Anthony Simons. Uh, are they? I, better than Denver.
1: I say they're, they're taking them to a seven game series, if nothing else. Um, if you look at the beginning of this year, you know they were they pretty much had the same record, you know. So they were fifteen and ten, still like that. So. Uh, Denver was obviously going to be better in the long haul, but I think they definitely give them a, a run for their money because now you've got, not only do you have postseason experience, but you've also got length on the perimeter. You've got some different uh, flexibility, switchability, and if you've got some depth on that bench, you know, it's, it's really going to change everything. So I, I feel very confident uh, rolling out that that series, or le- rolling out that team in that series. So you'd say about, sure about right. equal? Yeah, about equal. i say about equal.
0: Are they better than Phoenix?
1: Um... I would I would say yeah you know in the postseason I don't Phoenix I mean, just they, they can't seem to get out of their own way with injuries and whatnot so I'd say yeah I think they, they give them wrong for their money too that's it Lillard and Buller is that's it that's it I'm monstrous you know two man pair I'd love to see that are they better than the Lakers? Ooh um I think this iteration of the Lakers I think they could they could they can match with them too I don't really see too many teams that they they couldn't, um, right, couldn't deal I'm with I'm asking they, are they clearly better? Clearly, clearly, no, I wouldn't say clearly. No, I wouldn't okay. say that. Are they clearly better than the Warriors? No, no. Clearly changed everything for me. I don't think they're clearly better than any of these teams, but okay. competitiveness. So they can compete. They can get into the
0: room, but they're not walking into that room and taking the dais. They're they're now one of five and maybe more. I mean, because you can ask if the Kings with better, with more experience have gotten better or whatever. But, okay, so you make your big move. And, again, we posited the minimum cost possible for them. They're going to have to pay more than we said. If nothing else, again, they're going to have to send out more salary. But we, we just literally kept their entire starting lineup, except for Anthony Simons. All right. So we said that they're a coin flip with the four teams that are in the second round here. So you've got to coin flip the second round. You've got a coin flip... The conference finals, and you got to coin flip the NBA finals, and that's assuming no one else gets appreciably better. I mean, again, perspective. I, I, I'm buying this less and less as we go along. But you know, one name that is uh, that is coming uh, that has come up possibly when the Bucks exited the playoffs, Giannis's name was brought up. It was joking, I hope. But people were going, maybe, right? Yeah. So the Bucks fire coach Mike Budenholzer, which brings up a couple conversation topics. The easier one is Giannis ain't going nowhere because you don't fire your coach and trade your superstar at the same time. It just doesn't if you were gonna trade your superstar, you'd keep your coach for continuity. It's like and they may have fired Budenholzer because of some of Giannis's comments, not directly one-to-one, but there was something not happening there at the end of that uh, Miami series that was like, yeah, you know, somebody wasn't guarding someone at the right time and space, and someone didn't feel comfortable speaking up, and et cetera, and now Budenholzer's gone. Forget Giannis, for one, but here's the other thing. Budenholzer's a championship coach who's won 70% of his regular season games and 54% of his playoff games. Can you believe he's gone?
1: Uh, I, I, it's like fifty-fifty. I can, but I can't. You know, it's it's really rare that you see a, a coach that, you know, had that body of work over a 5 minutes span. You know, it get it, get it fired, but at the same time, I think if you if you were to say that you got Giannis Antetokounmpo, you got Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Burke Lopez, all of that, and you only get one NBA Finals appearance, I think you can say that you kind of underachieved in that area. Um, obviously, it, it's very competitive in that Eastern Conference, but. Um, just looking at the bigger picture, you know, I can see a case for them, you know, wanting to move on, especially with some of the late game execution uh, failures they had and, and just failures to adjust. You know, I think Boone is still a championship level coach, but maybe he isn't the right fit for that specific team in that situation. So, you know, I, I kind of understand that part.
0: Nick Nurse in Toronto as well. In fact, I read a graphic that said like, I think it was like four, three or four championship coaches were fired yes. two years after they won the title. And it's like, wow. Are the expectations for coaching too high? Or is this, like the, uh, is this just like the new thing that uh, you know, coaching is even more short-term than it is or has been, and it's a lot harder to move your, your star players now, so you move your coach.
1: Yeah, it definitely. It feels like on a shorter leash, um, particularly from years past and that championship brings culture is, 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 huge. You know, if you don't get it done and kind of goes back to Giannis in his press conference about, you know, if, if it was a success or a failure of the season, uh, it's, it's tough. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with all of the parts with Boonehurst being fired. You know, there was a situation with him losing his brother in the middle of the series. So, you know, the human aspect of it, you know, you, you think about that too, but, um, I don't know. I think, yeah, there's so much pressure to win a championship that, you know, if you don't get it done, especially if you have a stacked roster in the right situation, you know, you're looked at as a failure. And I think that them being the number one seed, I think, played a part in that too, because they're the the first ever one seed to lose in five games in the the first round. So um, that part of it kind of goes into it, too. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm kind of 50-50 on it, I would say.
0: So I think players get to have bad series and stars get to have lots of them if they want to. I don't think coaches do honestly uh i think that the the bar is so high but i can now hear blazer fans screaming well what about chauncey billups so two things let's seg into this first of all you did our review of chauncey billups and go ahead and let it out like extended how do you feel about how billups did this year what do you think should happen with billups and do you agree with the cry that like, okay, literally strike while the, while the iron is hot. Budenholzer is out there. Nick Nurse is out there. Go get him. Fire Chauncey. Where do you land on Chauncey's performance? And do you think that while these coaches are out there that the Blazers
1: should move? I think, um, to be brutally honest, I think, you know, you can say that he, he underperformed this year. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to say that. I think, you know, as I said in the review, it was a mutual effort. You know, there were some things that, that Billups did well. I like the way he challenged his younger players. I like his, his defensive sets at times and, and how creative he was. But at the same time, I think it's it's borderline inexcusable to, to blow 18 double-digit leads, you know, in a season. I think that that's just at some point that goes back to the coaching. And I, kind of like what you said earlier, you know, players are allowed to have bad series. And coaches, you kind of wonder that too. But Billups is in, is in year two, and you kind of wonder, you know, how that how different that's going to be with a coach in year three, as opposed to a player, is he going to see things differently? Uh, but the Blazers, are, as they're currently constructed, I don't know that they bought themselves a lot of time. You know, if Billups is still trying to learn how to deal with these things, and, and they're trying to maximize Damian Lillard's window. Do those things go hand in hand? Or do you have to go get a more experienced, championship-caliber coach right now? So that would be something to think about. But uh, I think there's a, it, was a, it was a failure on all parts, and Bill's kind of said it himself. You know, he was ready for the season to end, and then, you know they're saying they don't want to see it again, but you know, you know, you don't know what they're going to do differently. So I would say yeah, um, in that area,
0: literally what they said at the beginning of this year, right? <laughs> We're not yeah. going to see that again. Oh, um, do we know what do we know for sure about Chauncey Billups as a coach right now after year two?
1: I think the biggest thing is that he's a, uh, a players' coach um, in regard that players playing for him. Everything you read, I don't, I don't think that is just. Players saying that, just say it. I think they really, truly care about him. I think they want to win for him. I think in some ways he's been kind of dealt a uh, bad hand, just in terms of the depth that they've had. Could have definitely been better. Like he could be better himself too, but you know, some situations with their injuries and, and their lack of, of second unit hasn't made things easier. Their lack of size has been. We've talked about it. We got the week on this podcast. You know, they just don't have size, and that that limits what he can do defensively. So um, I think those are the things we know for sure. There's a lot of things we don't know, but. The things that we do know are, are basically that.
0: Should the Blazers go after a more established coach right now, if that established, let's just say it was Nurse and Budenholzer, and they could talk to them or attract them. Should they think about that right now?
1: I think they should think about it, but I think that, you know, expectations should be tempered. Um, I kind of wonder with, with Budenholzer, what he did with, with Milwaukee, I think it'd be kind of, you know, unwise to expect that same thing in Portland. Because Portland doesn't have a Giannis, Portland doesn't have a Drew Holiday. They don't have a Brooke Lopez, be protector like that. So, you're basically expecting those same results, but without the the right recipes to do it. So, I think if, if you're content with a, a 45 win season and a first round exit, second round exit, maybe you try that. But you know, I think it's the situation with the Blazers. I think it's more roster based as to why they aren't a championship contender right now, as opposed to the, to the coach.
0: Here's an interesting question that came up in the midst of all of this, and it's come up in Boston, a couple other places, and we've talked about it in Portland, particularly in terms of transition defense. How much is it a responsibility of a coach to coach effort? Should effort be expected from the players at all times, and then the coach helps them put that to best advantage? Or is it on coaching to really get them to play hard?
1: Um, I think just using my experience as a player, I think that um, I think it's, it's more on the players. I think you've got to kind of go out there and want it. Um, and if Phillips wasn't putting them in a situation where they, you know, if he, if he wasn't putting them in a situation where they could go out and be aggressive, you know, and transition on defense, that'd be one thing. But with the Blazers, when I watched them play this year, it felt like a lot of times they had guys where they were, you know, foul hunting or trying to uh, get in, in situations where they could get a whistle. And they put them in four and five situations, and that makes it tougher. Um, I guess on the other side of it, they weren't the best when it came to communicating on defense, and and they got lazy in terms of that, too. So, like with everything, I think it's a mutual thing, Uh, but I think it's more on the players. They've got to kind of want it. And, you know, we've seen it when they were healthy that they were able to do that, but just wasn't able to translate over the full 82 game season.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm of mixed feelings about that. I think. I think it really is on the players, especially if you're a professional. I mean, this is literally your job. This is the basis of your job to come out and play hard, right? Try to win games. At the same time, I think there comes a time where you start to process that that effort is in vain, that no matter how much effort you put in, this still isn't going to work. And I think the Blazers reached that very quickly after the All-Star break. And I think you saw Damian Lillard scrambling to try to counter that idea and that narrative. And it's like, come on guys, this is it. Come on. We got to turn it on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then you would see them try and see them lose. And then you just saw it start to, I mean, Lillard was like a isolated Island in the midst of an on rushing ocean of mediocrity or suckiness. And finally, even he crumbled. I think some of that is coaching. I mean, that, that, there has to be a belief and a confidence that what you do matters and is going
1: to produce results. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that with a, 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 a deeper team, I think you can, you can make a case for it. Um, you know, in a lot of situations with, let's see Greg Popovich, you know, if his team isn't playing well, he'll sub out a whole five man unit and put the bench in. With Billups, I don't think you could necessarily do that with how young those guys were uh, without looking like a fool. So that's one thing to think about. But on the other side, you know, he played those guys so hard, you know, in, in the first part of the season. You know, you look at the, the box scores and Jeremy Brent's getting 39, 40 minutes, Dame's getting 40 minutes. And some of those games, they weren't even winning. So, you know, you, you're thinking about it, they may have been fatigued. You know, if you look at Jeremy Brent's numbers uh, post All Star break versus pre All Star break, you know, that's it, a, a, a huge difference. So, Billups, I think he has, he plays a role in that too, and playing his guys too hard, but. You know, I think it's, it's from top to bottom, the front office, to the coaching staff, to the players, I think everybody kind of kind of has some blame in that. So, and nobody's, nobody's absent from that. And this goes
0: back to the hidden cost of whatever trade they make is, does it cost them depth or more accurately, because again, what depth do they have really that's proven, but does it prevent them from then going out and being able to get more depth, for instance, does it push them into the luxury tax or so close to the luxury tax that they don't want to take that step over? And now they're limited in moves two and three and four after they've made move one. Or does it get them, God forbid near that second apron where they start to lose resources, right? And are are even further limited. There are a lot of moving parts to this that aren't talked about much. And again, it's, It's going to be interesting to see whether they can actually negotiate all of that. It feels like a calculus-level problem, and the Blazers are still doing addition. So uh, as we approach that time, uh, one guy I want to talk about is Anthony Simons as we close because he is the most named player as far as moving what kind of value do you think he has and who do you think might be comparable to him? Because people are using him in trades for, again, Mikhail Bridges, in trades for Joel Embiid. He's good. He's got a lot of potential. Actually, I value him, I think, higher than most people do, but I don't think he's in that league. How much value do you think Simons
1: really has? Yeah, I, I agree with you. His growth as a 23-year-old has been you know, incredible. You know, it's been a 20-point score, dynamite score. Those kind of players on growing trees, um, but I think that he's a guy that I think if, if Portland wants to reach their full potential, I think you kind of have to have to deal him. And I think I've always kind of been on on that train. But Shaden Sharp's finale to the season, and just kind of imagining how it could look with with Lillard Sharp um, and Athletic Three, and finally having some size in there, I think you definitely want to want to take a chance on that. Uh, as far as value goes, I think he's he's one of those guys where you know his his contract is kind of new, so you gotta think about that, but. I mentioned earlier the, the Ringer. They made a trade chart. They've got him at number fifty-nine, and they have got players around him such as such as Jared Allen, R.J. Barrett, um, Kyle Kuzma, Tyler Hero, guys like that. So, I think you're looking at um, you know without a draft pick. I think you're looking at guys that are borderline you know all-stars, guys that are, are capable quality starters. I think, but when you add, when you add that draft pick to it, depending on where it is, you know you really got a chance to, to cook with some guys and, and make some moves. So, like I said before, I think the biggest thing is just going to be um what happens in May on May 16th with that draft pick. You know, if you get a number one pick and you can our number two pick and you can put that with Simons and we'll get a star. I think that's that's very appealing. But I think it's gonna kind of depend on what we see up the next couple of weeks though.
0: Are we still united that if they get number one, they take Wembyanova?
1: Sorry.
0: Yeah. I always <laughs> stumble over that name. Uh, they're gonna I, get I'm, Giannis and and Wemby and then we're not gonna be able to pronounce anything and we're gonna win a title.
1: Yeah absolutely I'm with you
0: on that. Let's do it.
1: So no, they keep they keep him right. Yeah, yeah, I say yeah. maybe uh, after that? I think you, 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 you look at trading the pick. Um, I think with Scoot Henderson, I think he's going to be a really good player, and I've seen some some comparisons to maybe Derek Rose. But the last thing Portland needs right now is another guard. So I think if you get the two pick, uh, I think you trade that for a quality, you know, wing big kind of player and see what you can do. But that's just my opinion on it, though.
0: Okay, here's my question. Do you still keep Wemby, even if you ascertain that his growth curve is going to take four years? And I'm not saying that he's going to take four years to produce. He's going to produce at a high level very quickly. But when you're really talking about competing for wings, you have to wait three or four years for him. And you know you're not going to be able to wait three or four years with Dame, so you know that keeping him means trading Dame. I'm not saying that's reality, but let's say we assess it that, that way. Would you still keep Wemby then?
1: That's such a tough hypothetical um, because I feel like at that point, you know, you're, you're kind of leveraging your, your future for your present and your past. Like I don't know did you want to. Wembyama, from what I've heard, you know, other than the back injuries and whatnot, he's he's got a he's got a uh, case to be the next generational talent. Um, and I have a hard time giving that up, you know, for a 32 year old point guard that maybe only has you know five or six more years of, of All Star kind of play. So. Um, That'd be tough, but I think in that situation, you know, I, I'd side toward Wimby, just because we 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 kind of already know what the Blazers' peak is with with Damian Lillard as the number one guy. But with Wimby, you don't know. And I think that we haven't had enough chances to see the unknown there, so that'd be how I'd, say it, how I'd say it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's my big question, and this is what I keep trying to get at: is that the Blazers fans, I think, have so conflated Damian Lillard and the franchise that they just literally see no difference between the two and look well we got to keep what we have well what do you have you have Damian Lillard 100% Damian Lillard you should celebrate that and it is everything you dreamed it would be and more if you isolate it down to that player okay one of the greatest if not the greatest players ever to put on the uniform a reason to go to the arena every night brilliant 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 guy but what, is, what do you have now as a franchise, from the franchise perspective? You have 33 wins. You have, uh, having been to the conference finals once and getting swept out of them in 2019 and never coming close. Uh, other than that, I mean, you have, it's, it's like the 1980s with a lot less overall team talent and a lot less forward momentum right now. You're going backwards. As a franchise, you don't have anything to protect right now. Damien Lillard, you have a lot, right? But those two are not the same. So when you get this, well, we got to keep what we have now, you don't have anything now from a franchise point of view, is my argument. And it, conflating, look, the PR and in some ways Lillard himself have all been slanted toward dame is the franchise and and i get it if you narrow it down to this one point in time but this one point in time won't last forever and you've got to plan for the next five years and you can't it's it's literally a kitchen nightmare situation well my current patrons love this dish it sucks it's terrible you're getting it out of a jar you know it's just like or that one dish is good and you're
1: not going to go anywhere with it you're going to go out of business yeah, you basically said what I was thinking, just a little bit more passionately. Um, I'm 100% on board with that. And I, I think that we, we just watched Damian Lillard have the best season of his career, and he had 33 wins to show for it. Like, my question is, how many times do you want to see that same movie play out? Number one. And number two is, you know, does he have another level he can reach, you know, at 33? So um, if you're asking me five years, you know, for a championship contention versus 15 years with with Miami I got to go up to 15, and I think at some point Lillard would kind of understand that and knowing that Portland did what they could there in that situation, and and I don't think he complained about it. I think he either kind of dealt with it or it'd be a situation where they they dealt him to a a different team to get even younger, which gave him a chance to win a championship. So I think there's there's win-win scenarios to be had if the Blazers get the number one pick. So everything kind of hinges on that, though. Right. I mean,
0: because now, okay, Cam Reddish doesn't look so bad anymore, right? Matisse Dibble, or even Jeremy Grant. It's like, okay, I get it. We're building into the future with this. And if you, in parentheses, say, and we're going to move Dame, it's going to be really sad. But we're going to get a haul of draft picks and maybe a good young player. Now we've got like five chances to add to the future as well. And we've already got our generational superstar, which is the hardest part of that equation to get. I don't see the downside there. I do see the downside potentially of going the other direction. We've talked about it. Now, I'm not going to scream if they go the other direction, especially if they pull it off skillfully. I'm just saying one of those things seems to add up to a lot easier path than the other. But of course, that is dependent on them getting the number one overall pick, which we will see when we uh, talk again. We will be actually one week closer, which means... Uh, we will be on the 12th. Uh, they'll hear this on the 13th next week, three days away. Oh, uh, we'll talk about that and getting all excited and stuff like that. Anything else we need to add before we go? I can't think of anything else. All righty. Well then for Marlo Ferguson, I'm Dave Deckard. We hope you are having a great weekend and go not blazers. Uh, we, Oh, well uh, actually one more thing quickly, Marlo. How sad were you to see the Kings lose?
1: Oh man. Oh man, I wanted that series so badly. Uh, I'm not even a Kings fan, but it would have just been cool for them to see. I think every every franchise deserves to have that that long. They I wanted them to feel what Blazers fans felt in 2014. They deserved it. But next year, that team is going to be a force to be reckoned with. So better days ahead, I'll say.
0: Yep. I mean, i i was I was legitimately sad for a minute. But then it's like, OK, I got over it because I'm a Blazers fan. And next year you all can root for my team instead of my, me rooting for yours. But that was kind of a magical, you know, that, that was a magical run. I'm sorry it ended soon, but we'll see. All right. Well, for Marlon Ferguson, I'm Dave Deckard. We'll talk about all that and more next week. We'll see you soon.